Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. We are in our third uh, week on our series on apologetics, which is the, uh, the defense of the Christian faith. So if you missed either or both of the last two weeks, I strongly, strongly encourage you to go back and listen to those or watch those. Uh, because this series, it's all about strengthening your own faith, and it's all, uh, all about empowering you to more confidently share your faith. So we're basing this series out of 1 Peter 3.15, uh, where Peter writes, To always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Uh, so, uh, so far in this series, the last two weeks, we have approached uh, apologetics from a historical standpoint, the historical evidence for Jesus and the historical evidence for the resurrection. So in the last two weeks, we've established five core historical truths and facts that uh, almost all scholarly atheists would agree to. So these are those five uh, facts that we went through uh, the last couple weeks that even almost every atheist will agree with, that Jesus did in fact historically exist. He was a true historical figure. He was crucified. The tomb was discovered empty. The disciples at the very least believed that they encountered a risen Jesus and Jesus was worshiped as God from a very short time following his crucifixion. So uh, these are his, uh, accepted historical facts. Uh, so what we do from here is we say, what is the most likely explanation for these five facts? To me, and most likely to you, the most logical explanation is that God raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Uh, so uh, in the last few weeks, we've kind of poked holes in the other theories that are out there, such as Jesus was someone else's baby and had a twin brother, and he was switched. There were, the babies were switched at birth, and then after Jesus died, the other twin showed up and claimed to be Jesus, which is a, an actual theory that people ascribe to because they don't want to put faith in the resurrection so they'll put faith anywhere else. But this is a powerful tool for sharing your faith. Find the common ground. Establish these five facts and say, okay, will you explain this to me in a logical way and just see what people come up with? So we begin with common ground with these five accepted facts and we say provide an explanation better than the resurrection because the fact of the matter is you can't. So today we're stepping out of the realm of historical apologetics and we're moving into the realm of scientific apologetics. Uh, so, so maybe you're thinking, what does science have to do with the church and what does science have to do with our faith? But they're actually extremely relevant topics to the church today and I'm going to explain why to you. Uh, in a Gallup poll, uh, Gallup poll that was released in 1944, they asked Americans a very simple question, do you believe in God? In 1944, 98% of Americans said they believed in God. Uh, if you'll put that on the screen for me, Pat. 98% in 1944. They asked this question two more times in the 1950s, and they got the same result, 98%. They asked the question two more times in the 1960s, and they got the same result, 98%. Fast forward 50 years later in 2011, and that number dropped to 92%. But what I want you to see is it took about 65 years 
to drop from 98% to 92%. And then the poll was taken again last year in America. Do you believe in God? And last year, the result was 81%. It takes 65 years to drop 6%. It takes 11 years to drop 11%. You can see that the numbers are, are plummeting just for belief in God. That's not even necessarily saying a Christian God. That's just saying God in general. Now, what does, where does science fit into this? Uh, there, there's an institution in Seattle. It's called the Discovery Institute. And when they saw the results of that survey, they did their own survey uh, to, to kind of probe this spike in unbelief. And they made a telling discovery. What they found is that uh, they discovered that the misunderstandings of science were a huge factor in the increase in unbelief. And in fact, I want you to see a few of the specific finds from their survey. This is a quote from their survey. They said, we found that scientific theories about the unguided evolution of life have, in particular, led more people to reject the belief in God than worries about suffering, disease, or death. I don't want you to miss this. They said, what we found in our survey is more people are choosing to reject belief in God because they are ascribing to a Darwinian evolution that says we don't need God to explain life. More people are leaving the faith or belief in God for that reason than because of suffering, disease, or death. And in fact, it also found that 65% of atheists said that the findings of science generally make the existence of God less probable. probable. Now, I want you to see something before we moved on. In fact, if you'll move back to that last one that we just had on the screen there, Pat. Um, we talk about the teaching of evolution in the public schools. And we don't even think of it as a threat. We don't even think of it as meaningful. But what we're finding is we're teaching evolution as a fact. There is no other, there is no other way. There's no other possibility. And then as people are growing up, they are actually choosing to reject belief in God because they've been taught in the public, public school that it's not necessary to explain our existence. I just wanted you to see that before we move on. Uh, now, part of the reason that we have uh, science that's leading to this rejection of faith is because we have all of these celebrity scientists uh, like Richard Dawkins, Bill Nye, and the late Stephen Hawking. Uh, all of them are releasing publications uh, and books that argue that science renders God either unnecessary or implausible. And these works, at the same time, are derogatory towards anyone who disagrees. So, uh, for instance, regarding evolution itself, uh, Dawkins wrote this. He said, it is absolutely safe to say that if you meet someone who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. But where I want to spend most of our time this morning is what you might call the beginning of the scientific argument. And that's because it's the argument over the beginning. So I want to look at the argument for intelligent design and the argument for creation. And uh, as you might assume, Dawkins uh, is far from quiet on this subject as well. So he wrote this concerning uh, creation or, or concerning the beginning. He said, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we would expect if at bottom there is no purpose, 
no design, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And he says, uh, contradicting himself, he has another quote from his book, The Blind Watchmaker, where he says, biology itself is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. So he has two quotes, and one he says, well, there's no evidence for design. And then the next one he says, well, there's only the evidence for an appearance of design. In other words, what he's saying is, biology is the study of complicated things that have the appearance of design, but you should know there's no designer. Now, I, I agree with Dawkins in one aspect. There is certainly the appearance of design. Only when I use that, that abductive reasoning that we talked about last week, I believe the ex best explanation for the appearance of design is there's a designer. Uh, in Genesis 1, it simply says, God created. That's all you need to know this morning. God created. In John chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Through him, through Jesus, all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Uh, scripture is littered with this truth. Colossians 1.16, Revelation 4.11. Uh, and regarding the universe itself, I think David's words uh, say it so well in Psalm 19. He said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. This is foundational to the Christian faith. We believe in, in an eternal God who created all things on purpose and with purpose. So when we were discussing apologetics on the basis of history, we started with that common ground. What are those five facts that we can agree on and we'll go from there? It's one of the most effective ways to begin to share your faith. You find that common ground and you go from there. So where is a place in science where we can find common ground to go from there? We're going to do the same thing, and I believe that that statement of common ground is this. We believe that there was a moment when creation began, and behind that moment of creation, there was an eternal agent. Now, scientists and cosmologists would mostly agree with this statement. They would not like that I use the word creation, but they're not here today so they can get over it. They would prefer to use the word cosmos or universe and say, we believe there was a moment when the cosmos began, perhaps. But they would agree mostly with the premise of this statement, that it began at some point and that there is an eternal agent behind it. And that's where our opinions kind of differ from here because I believe, as many of you do, that the world began the way that the book of Genesis says the world began, the way it unfolds in the creation story. But science teaches that the world began with a completely random and indifferent Big Bang. So even if we were to accept this idea of the Big Bang, there still has to be something before the Big Bang. There has to be something, uh, because they, they believe that, that the Big Bang is where time and space itself began. So what was there before time and space? If the Big Bang is where time and space began, then there had to be something that is not bound by time, something that is not bound by space. In other words, there has to be something eternal, and scientists recognize this problem. We say that that eternal something behind creation is God. Scientists for centuries have said that that something, that eternal entity 
from which all things came is the universe itself. This is the case uh, from at least Aristotle in the 4th century BC, this idea that the universe, the universe we live in is eternal. Uh, Carl Sagan, who died in 1996, uh, he was an American astronomer and astrophysicist, and he was famous for this, this quote, the cosmos or the universe is all that is or was or ever will be. In other words, it's simply eternal. Uh, a man named Quentin Smith is an atheist philosopher at the University of Michigan, and he says that the most radical position or the most rational position to hold is that the universe came from nothing, it came by nothing, and it came for nothing. It's this idea that the universe is simply eternal. But what has happened in recent years is the rug has been pulled out from under the proponents of this theory because now there is overwhelming evidence that the universe itself actually had a beginning. It's not eternal, but it had a beginning. So this is a major problem because the universe is supposed to be the eternal entity that brought everything forth. But if now we can prove that the universe was created, it means that there must have been another eternal entity that brought everything into existence. So this idea was first seriously put out about 100 years ago uh, by uh, Edwin Hubble, who the telescope is named after. And uh, he observed through his telescope that the galaxy is uh, expanding further and further away from us. And in fact, it's not slowing down, but the further you look away, the faster it's expanding. So he believed, let's just kind of rewind that. If everything is expanding out, if you rewind it, it means eventually it all comes back together to a single point, a moment of creation. Uh, however, this was not accepted by scientists because it presents the problem of what about our eternal universe? However, for, for a number of reasons, and uh, I'm not uh, going to go into all of them uh, in depth because they make my head hurt, but for a number of reasons, uh, just in the last uh, a few decades, uh, it's basically been proven that the universe, in fact, did have a moment of existence. So they look at things uh, like the abundance of radioisotopes, white dwarf cooling curves, maps of cosmic microwave background radiation, measures of cosmic expansion rates. Did you get all of that? You see why I'm not going into it in depth? They have uh, all, all of these very in-depth scientific studies that show this is proof that our universe had an existence. Uh, so the evidence for the universe being uh, having a beginning and not being eternal uh, became so overwhelming that in 2003, so this is 20 years ago, three scientists, uh, Arvind Bord, Alexander Vilenkin, and Alan Guth, were able to prove that in a universe which is on average expanding throughout its history, cannot be infinite in the past, but must have a space-time boundary. In other words, there must be an absolute beginning. So Vilenkin said this, he said, it is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men and proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Now, I think this is so incredible because for over 2,500 years, the understanding has been the universe is eternal. 
And we are living in the generation where it has been discovered, no, it's not. That's cool to me. Uh, with the establishment of this fact that the universe had a beginning, proponents of creation and proponents of intelligent design, they turn to a, a very simple three-step formula. It's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. There's three steps. They're very easy to remember. Uh, the first step is whatever begins to exist had a cause. Something caused it. Second step, the universe began to exist. Third step, the universe has a cause. Something must have caused the universe to exist. So uh, we've already established that there is consensus in the scientific community on this second step now, that the universe did in fact begin to exist. So we can look at the first step and said, Instead, whatever begins to exist has a cause. This is just logically undeniable. Uh, for something to exist without any sort of cause would be just to come into being from nothing. Nobody believes when you get home that a, a, a horse will have magically popped out of thin air into your room from nothing because things just don't come out of nothing. Something cannot come into existence from nothing. And I like the way that, that William Lane Craig put this. He said... The idea that the universe just came from nothing is, is, is way worse than, than a magician uh, because if a magician pulls a rabbit out of its hat, well, at least you had a magician and at least you had a hat. They're saying we don't even have that. We had nothing and the universe just came into being. Now, now to deny the, the premise that the whole universe just appeared at some point without a finite past for no reason whatsoever, it, it just... Nobody sincerely believes that something comes from ab absolutely nothing other than supernaturally through God. So the atheists will respond to this, this argument. They'll say, well, what is God's cause if everything has to have a cause? But the first premise of that argument uh, is not that everything has a cause. It's that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Something that is eternal and never began to exist wouldn't have a cause, and God is eternal and uncaused. And, and, and here's what I want you to see. This isn't asking for a special exception for God that we say that he's eternal, because this is what atheists have always said about the universe. It's just now we have proven that that's not true. So therefore, the, the atheist is backed into this corner of having to say, okay, you have a point, or having to say, no, it just came out of nothing. So we come to the third premise of uh, whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And you can't just say that the cause is the Big Bang. Because even if there's a Big Bang, there would have to be a cause of the Big Bang. So we don't have a lot of eternal options to explain the creation of the universe. But we do have one very good one, that the word of God is true. Uh, I, I love the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90, uh, verse 2. He said, before the mountains were born or, or before you brought the whole world, uh, forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This one verse uh, addresses both issues here. It says that we have an eternal agent, eternal agent, who is from everlasting to everlasting. And it also says that he is the creating agent who created everything. 
So I hope that that didn't give you too much of a headache. Um, one more quick point. Can I give you one more? So one more second discovery uh, that they have made in recent years that supports the idea of intelligent design is called uh, the fine-tuning. Uh, fine-tuning. So modern physicists and, and astronomers, they've discovered basically that the odds against the universe existing in its present form by pure chance are basically mathematically impossible. Uh, there are laws and forces within our universe such as gravitational force, electromagnetic force, nuclear force that um, uh, they possess uh, in our universe incredibly specific values for there to be life on our planet, for there to be a universe at all. And if any of those values deviated just a small amount, the universe would cease to exist and life itself would cease to exist. So, for instance, if we just look at gravitational force, uh, there's a physicist and philosopher, his name is Robin Collins, and he said if, if you take a tape measure and you stretch it, across the entire known universe. Now, I want you to think of that for a moment. We, we have some images of our universe. Uh, this is from the, the Webb telescope. Uh, you can find these online. Um, go ahead and throw those on the screen for me, Pat, uh, the, the images at the end for me. So we're talking about taking a tape measure, and you can cycle through them, and sticking the tape measure from here through all of this to the end of all of this, through all of these galaxies. And he said, if you take a Sharpie and you mark it on that tape measure just somewhere along the way, if the gravitational force, if it altered one inch, we all die. The universe could not exist. Uh, an astrophysicist named Hugh Ross, he compares it to this, he says, if you cover North America with dimes, uh, just side by side, lay dimes across the entire continent of North America, and you pile the dimes up to the moon, and then you repeat this process with one billion North Americas, one billion North Americas, then find the one, one specific marked dime blindfolded, and if you pick any wrong dime, the universe could not exist. It's simply not possible. Uh, one more for you. Austra uh, Australian physicist Luke Barnes, he calculated that if we take the parameters of these very, uh, various forces that they're capable, capable of and the odds that they would all fall into this range so that our planet could sustain life, it's 1 in 10 to the 135th power. In other words, it's this number right here. Go ahead to the next slide for me, Pat. One in that. So how does an atheist explain this? How can they explain the odds of us being able to have life of any sort on this planet? And, and I want you to see, I have a quote from one of them. I can't really pronounce his name. It's Mikio Kaku or something like that. But uh, here's what he says. It's shocking to find how many of the familiar, go ahead and put that on the screen for me if you don't mind, Pat. It's shocking to find how many of the familiar constants in the universe lie within a very narrow band that makes life possible. Now look what he says next. If a single one of these accidents were altered, 
Stars would never form, the universe would fly apart, DNA would not exist, and life as we know it would not be possible. There is a refusal to believe in the supernatural. He says the odds are simply impossible, but they're all accidents. So when we take this, this idea of, of how impossible it would be just to randomly have life on this, this uh, planet, uh, scientists, Renee, you could come, scientists have come up with two hypotheses to explain the fine-tuning th- phenomenon. The first is what we call the mert- multiverse theory. This is the theory that there are millions and perhaps even an in- infinite amount of universes and we are just the fortunate one that landed on the right planet. So put, put that number back on the screen for me again, Pat. The theory of the multiverse, which is the most common way that you'll hear it refuted today, is this. That there are that bottom number, there are that, at least that many universes out there. So we're on the one out of that many universes. The rest can sustain no life and don't exist. Uh, they say we just live on a very fortunate planet. By the way, there is zero evidence for this theory. The only reason that this theory is even put forth is because there is a refusal to say that it could just be intelligent design. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.